Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today I'm very excited to have a special guest, Dr. Chris Wu, who is a professor of anesthesiology and pain medicine here at Johns Hopkins and has agreed to come on the program to talk about the ERAS pathways that he has led for quite some time here and that uh, we are really doing a lot of new and innovative uh, protocols with. And I want to welcome Chris. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Jed, thank you for uh, having me. Chris, uh, first, can you give me some idea of, I guess let's start at the basics. What, what is ERAS? What does it stand for and, and what does it mean? What would, what would you want people to know who have never heard much about it before? Well, uh, ERAS uh, stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. And this sort of was a, a originally about two decades ago by a surgeon named Henry Kellett in, uh, from Denmark who created what we call previously known as fast-track surgeries. And uh, he had his a remarkable series of publications decreasing length of stay of elective colorectal surgery from 9 to 10 days down to 2 days. And ERAS evolved from that as the uh, sort of a group of surgeons and anesthetists want to uh, help create an evidence-based pathway to, to sort of re- get the patient um, back to uh, baseline as soon as possible after surgery. Great. And what, in what ways have we incorporated it here, or what has your experience been? Have you done different subcategories of surgeries that we've applied this to, and where did we start? So we, as most uh, places have started, it was with elective colorectal surgery. And the reason for that is that most of the literature, uh, including the earlier data from Dr. K, that was uh, focused on uh, colorectal surgery. Great. And so when we started with colorectal surgery, can you give me an example of some of the things that were the initial components of the pathway, and what did we do differently from what we were doing before? Sure. So just as a reminder, the ERAS pathway encompasses not just anesthesiology, but surgery and nursing, patient education. But obviously, for the purposes of our discussion here, we'll just focus on the anesthesiology part. So uh, one of the the key components that sort of are different than what we used to do is in essence this is an evidence-based standardized anesthetic pathway such that the intraoperative pathway is standardized to uh, uh, TIVA, plus or minus epidural anesthesia or IV lidocaine depending on the type of surgery. And then postoperatively, we'll have a multimodal analgesic regimen, uh, again, trying to avoid opioids because uh, obviously the side effects of opioids uh, sedation, nausea, vomiting, uh, ileus, even respiratory depression in rare cases, obviously do not uh, facilitate patient recovery. 
Great. So let's look at each component area separately for a second. In the preoperative area, what are some things that we do with the ERAS pathways and why? So previously, we did not have any standardized uh, preoperative uh, assessment or pathways. But now what we do is before they come into surgery, uh, up to two hours, they actually drink uh, 20 ounces of Gatorade ahead of time. And the reason for that is to sort of carbohydrate load uh, because surgery, in essence, is a catabolic state. And this will try to prevent sort of the insulin resistance that, that occurs. And then when they get to the uh, preoperative area, they get a, a standardized regimen, assuming there's no medical contraindications, of uh, acetaminophen, celecoxib. Uh, a scopolamine patch for post-op nausea vomiting, and a gabapentin. And the reason the, the gabapentin, acetaminophen, and celcoccus are given is to sort of prevent uh, post-operative pain. So we try to load them up to sort of attenuate that. Great. So interesting, this uh, preoperative Gatorade load, this is really different than even just a few years ago when I was a resident and learning, you know, NPO before midnight for all surgeries. So what the concern then obviously was, uh, aspiration. So we believe now that that's not a not an issue with drinking uh, up to a couple hours before surgery. Yeah. So if you even look at the ASA uh, pre sort fasting guidelines, they say clear liquids up to two hours before, no solids after six. Uh, so. This is different. Uh, we've never had patients get, drink Gatorade uh, prior to surgery until we started the ERAS pathway. But again, there's quite a bit of literature suggesting that, uh, again, surgery is a catabolic state. We try to prevent that. And also, the other thing also is we like to uh, get the patients more to a uvolemic state, and I think giving the, the, the sort of the fluid load ahead of time would be helpful. The aspiration risk for most normal healthy patients is pretty minimal, so that doesn't really sort of... Uh, not not as much of a concern as it used to be. Okay. So let's say a patient comes to pre-op and they forgot. They didn't have their Gatorade. Would you give it to them in pre-op or now we're too close and we wouldn't? It's probably too close. I think by the time they get in and check in, it's probably an hour before game time. So it's very, I probably wouldn't do that at that point. Okay, great. So that's the, the Gatorade. And then they're going to get... Um, their uh, scopolamine patch, and you said that's for preventing post-op nausea and mm-hmm. vomiting. Now, is that in addition to some of the uh, other steps we may take, such as giving Zofran at the end of a case? Yes. Yeah, so we, uh, and scopolamine is, is uh, something that we hadn't used before. We typically, I think as most anesthesiologists, will use a, a serotonin antagonist such as uh, on Dantron, and then give something like a small dose of steroids, like the dexamethasone. The surgeons were really reluctant to to give a steroid, even though the literature is equivocal on that, to try to, uh, because our concern was mostly just cancer patients that are of immune function or suppression. So we decided to substitute scopolamine for dex. Okay. And in your experience, or maybe in the literature, does... Uh, are the outcomes in terms of post-op nausea and vomiting similar doing scopolamine instead of DEX? Uh, that's difficult to say. There's no head-to-head comparison. I think scopolamine is is a very effective. I think the meta-analysis suggests that. The only thing is we worry about, obviously, can uh, patients who might have uh, acute glaucoma, we want to uh, uh, probably avoid. And obviously, in older patients, it can be a little sedating and cause a little uh, blurry vision. So those are things to be concerned concerned about. So we might not give it to older patients. Okay. Do you have a, a cut off in your mind, I mean, if a patient over 70, 80, that you wouldn't do it? Usually 75, 80, but again, even some of them can tolerate that, and Mm -hmm. I think uh, we don't have a a hard cutoff at this point. And the scopolamine patch is placed in pre-op, is that right? That's correct. It's sort of, think of it like the the, the the behind-the-ear patch you get for 
uh, going uh, on a cruise, and that's the exact same thing they put it behind their ear. Okay. But we don't ask patients to, for example, put it on the night before. We wait till they come in. Yeah, we, we thought about that. And certainly, I think, obviously, you, you could do that, but I think it's just easier. Uh, they're obviously very nervous. There's many things to remember. I, I would guess if we did that, they would lose most of that or forget it. So it's just easier to do it right at the day of surgery. Great. And so we talked about, in terms of contraindications to that, maybe old age, uh, acute ankle glaucoma. Uh, are there other contraindications to this scopolamine patch that you think of? Uh, those are the main ones. Uh, certainly, again, there might be some other ones on an individual basis. Okay. And then we do um, Tylenol. So other than liver disease, mm-hmm. any, any contraindications you think of to that? Uh, not really. Again, the, it's usually a gram. Uh, and again, if for a normal-sized adult, and uh, that's something that we like to give ahead of time. The data suggests that, again, it, it's good for pre- preventive allergies, yeah. Great. And then gabapentin. Uh, contraindications to gabapentin? Uh, gabapentin is renally excreted, so obviously I think we want to cut down the dose or eliminate completely with patients with renal disease. I think gabapentin is sedating and, and, and causes dizziness, so obviously an older, elderly patient, we would either cut down the dose or decrease it completely. And the dose for a, a normal adult who does not have renal dysfunction is 600? About 600 milligrams, I think. Anywhere from most, the literature suggests anywhere from three to 900. Okay, great. And that's a one-time dose in the preoperative that's area? That's correct. And then do patients repeat that uh, postoperative or no? Oh, the literature on that it was... Unclear, so we do continue it postoperative at a lower dose, 100 milligrams uh, orally TID, uh, and then increase it to 300. But again, how long that needs to be on and how long after discharge is not clear. Okay. And then celecoxib was the third. And uh, tell me, what's the dose and what are the contraindications? So uh, celecoxib is a cyclone oxygenase 2 inhibitor. It's a non-steroidal. We could have used other types of nonsteroids, but obviously they might uh, cause bleeding than traditional nonsteroids such as ibuprofen. Uh, so the celcoxib in super therapeutic doses up to 600 milligrams, it does not affect platelet function. Our dose is 200 milligrams, and some of the uh, data suggests that you might even go up to 400 milligrams, which we haven't done but are considering. Great. Uh, thanks. And so... Um we're going to do those three, and patients are going to take those if in pre-op with a drink of water. That's correct. And we're not worried about that drink of water in terms of NPO status. No. Great. Okay. So that's the preoperative portion, and then patients are going to go back to the operating room. Now, you mentioned that uh, some patients are going to get epidurals as part of their ERAS pathway. So who gets an epidural? So in general, can, assuming there's no uh, medical contraindications or patients are okay with that, usually it's the open cases, the, the, the open colectomies, the open... X-lapse that will get the epidural. If they have a laparoscopic procedure, we should generally avoid doing epidural and give them a, something like a tap lock afterwards. And the reason for that is that the, the literature, the two or three meta-analysis that are out there, suggests that uh, using epidural for laparoscopic uh, colorectal surgery may not be of significant benefit as opposed to saying that in an open colectomy. Okay, so let's say we, ha- we do have an open case and yeah. we're doing an epidural. What are we going to run in that epidural? Yeah, so we will have, we, again, the, the goals for our, our ERAS pathway are a little different than most. We, we want to decrease length of stay, just like everyone else. But we have the other goal of preserving perioptive immune function. And because most of our patients are cancer patients, and uh, as you know, uh, during surgery, you have a drop in immune function that 
allows for a sort of uh, sets up the permissive circumstances for metastases. So we've designed our pathway to avoid immune or try to preserve uh, paraptive immune function. So in that sense, we want to avoid interoperatively uh, inhalational agents uh, and opioids particularly, uh, since those are immunosuppressive. So in place of that, we will give uh, a TIVA with propofol and then epidural anesthesia. So the epidural is placed and we get, in essence, like a, like a C-section type level of T4. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, we can attenuate the neuroendocrine stress response and preserve, uh, uh, try to preserve immune function. Great. So that we're going to try to bolus that up and, and get a level before incision. That's that correct. Right? Okay. So usually anywhere from 6 to 10 cc's of 2% lidocaine, and then you run a lidocaine infusion of 2% at like 4 to 6 cc's an hour. Great. Now, is it your practice to test a level before you put the patient to sleep so you know they have it, or do you not wait? Uh, Usually you want to have some evidence of a level. Uh, and a lot of times we will put the epidural outside in the pre-anesthesia area so we do have time to do that. Well, obviously, again, uh, sometimes we don't have time, and that's sort of the practical aspect of that. Okay. So now we're running 2% lidocaine in the epidural. You're going to sometimes see some hypotension from that. So what's your first step? If you see hypotension, do you stop the epidural or do you have a different approach? Uh, again, we we, ha- we we allow the in the pathway to allow the clinicians to to make the decision. And even though this is a pathway, the one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that the clinician who's taking care of the patient can do whatever he or she wants to take care of the patient. Um, but obviously, if the patient's healthy and doing well, we want them to follow the pathway. So if they have hypotension. We would rather keep the epidural, and, and so maybe we would run a presser, realizing that this is only temporary as we, towards the end of the case, if we stop the epidural uh, and run it as an analgesic concentration, we wouldn't need the, like the, the phenylephrine infusion that we typically would have available. So is phenylephrine uh, going to be our first line? Usually it is. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, you know, a lot of times you could decrease, you could try decreasing the, the, the rate of infusion is one possibility. Uh, but again, we what we don't want to do is to, to give too much fluid, which is a natural instinct for many anesthesiologists. Yeah, I'm glad you emphasized that. I think uh, that is a go-to often is to bolus a lot of fluid to treat hypotension, which uh, has adverse post-operative consequences yeah. as well. So when we start a phenylephrine infusion, do you have a, a recommended dose you, you recommend people starting at? They're obviously going to titrate to effect, but where do you usually start? Yeah, you, again, there's no, I think there's one to two um, to, to start off with, but there's, again, titrate to effect. And, and then again, that in combination with decreasing the, the propyl infusion uh, versus uh, decreasing the epidural rate, those are options that the, the clinician has available to them. Great. So in addition to running the epidural, we're also doing a TIVA anesthetic. Is that right? That's you said correct. we're avoiding uh, inhaled anesthetic and we're avoiding opiates. So uh, usually what is that going to mean for you, a propofol infusion? It is a propofol infusion for us. Uh, we want to avoid things like ketamine, which is an immunosuppressive, and remifentanil, which is an opiate, which also technically is immunosuppressive. And obviously we do worry about recall. Uh, so we do have a BIS monitor to, to try to keep it you know, between 40 and 50 or below 50 uh, and we'll obviously give some Versed ahead of time, uh, midazolam ahead of time before the epidural goes in. Great. So a BIS monitor is is uh, a monitor of anesthetic depth for those who don't use it regularly. And uh, normal, Chris, is going to be somewhere in the 80 to 100 range, is that right? Yeah. So when you're awake, it's depends you know, any 80 to 100. Obviously, if you're asleep, we want it below 50. Uh, again, there's controversy. How deep do you want it? That's another controversy. But anything below 50, I think, is reasonable. 
Great. All right. And then at the end of the case, these patients are getting uh, Zofran on Dancitron, as we talked about. They're not getting uh, steroids because of the immunosuppressive effect. Uh, neuromuscular blockers, as, as called right. for. That's yeah. correct. Just reverse as needed. Great. And now let's back up one second. Let's say these patients uh, are in the laparoscopic category. They're not going to get an epidural. Uh, and so you mentioned that they would get what are they going to get instead during the case? So instead of the epidural, you get IV lidocaine infusion. And so that is an analgesic. And the uh, meta-analysis, several of them suggest that you do have better pain control, uh, have early return of bowel function. So that's been a very valuable adjunct to that. And obviously, again, the, it's not to say that we can't give any opioids to, to, no matter what type of surgery is that, is that we'd rather that the clinician... Uh, use other non-opiate means, but the opiates are sort of the last resort, and they're always there available to the patient and for the clinician. Great. And what kind of dosing are we running the lidocaine at? Uh, usually you bolus them at uh, uh, one and a half milligrams per kilogram and followed by an infusion of 1.5 milligram per kilogram per hour. Okay. And you're running that until the patient wakes up? Yeah. So that's a very controversial, you know, where the data is not clear of where you end it. Some we tend to cut it off a little early because we don't want that we feel some people feel that it sort of delays awakening uh there are some people outside and other institutions that continue to run on the floor we don't do that we we are our, our, our floor nurses are, are not we, we don't have that capability at, mm-hmm. at hopkins at this point um so yeah the data is very unclear of how, you know where you should end that uh, to be honest with you it's very interesting so yeah great and how about magnesium yeah, so uh, you know, magnesium wasn't part of the initial pathway, and but one well, of the uh, ERAS faculty members brought this article to my attention, and also suggesting that uh, magnesium, uh, when given as sort of an IV dose, uh, may may uh, again like lidocaine provide allergies as a non-opioid. Uh, it doesn't really work at the NMD receptor; so it sort of facilitates that. Uh, but it's a pretty relatively low risk, and it doesn't inf- interfere with neuromuscular blocking agent. I think. The nice thing uh, about magnesium, sort of this process for our pathway, is that um, you know once we, the important point is that once we create a pathway, it's not a fixed pathway. It, it continues to be updated depending on the literature and depending on clinician input. So right now, uh, patients getting laparoscopic cases are going to get um, L- IV lidocaine, and they're also getting IV mag, or is it up to the clinic? No, no, it's uh, both. All cases really will get magnesium. Okay, yeah. so they'll get both. And the magnesium is given how? What kind of dosing? Uh, again, it's not very clear in the literature, so we decide just to give two grams IV as a con, you know infusion over one to two hours. Okay, so very similar. I think it's what you guys use in the unit. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. we give back quite a bit. In fact, uh, yeah. in the cardiac ICU, which is what Chris is referring to, we'll often uh, bolus patients with right. up to six six grams yeah. of magnesium um, if they're having any kind of arrhythmia. Yeah. Uh, all right, so. Now, at the end of the case, if a patient does not have an epidural, we will sometimes do tap blocks, which is going to be a transversus abdominis plane block. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do we do all patients get that having laparoscopic surgery, or how do we decide? Yeah, so we will consent them ahead of time, and ideally, uh, they will get one after after surgery. But again, logistically, sometimes depending on the flow and ebb of the day, some patients will not get that, but most patients will receive that. And it's very quick procedures done onto ultrasound, and it's like an it's relatively effective. Again, many of the meta-analysis suggests that it's effective. And is that done before or after the patient wakes up? Uh, usually, uh, that's a good question because traditionally we've done it 
after the patient wakes up. There's some uh, some recent uh, recent analysis in Northwestern suggesting if you do it ahead of time, they actually have less pain when they wake up. But again, how long does that last? So it really depends on on who's on that day, frankly. Great. Okay. And how long um, when a patient says to you, "Okay, great, you're going to do this tap lock," how long is that going to give me pain relief? What do you tell them? So usually the the data says anywhere from twelve to twenty four hours, uh, and again it's really operator dependent. Even with ultrasound, I think it's the the the, the efficacy has improved, but there's always some operator variability. Great, and that uh, is injecting. What concentration of bupivacaine are you usually injecting? Again, that depends, but usually you could something like uh, either point two percent ropivacaine up up to point five percent bupivacaine. So it depends, uh, but we just have to be careful that the total amount of local isn't uh, too high. Okay, and then that is being injected. Am I correct between the? Uh, Internal oblique and the transversus abdominis correct. Uh, in the pla- in the fascial plane. There. Right, it's very easy to see on ultrasound. Great, all right, and that's either bilateral or unilateral, depending on the. That's correct. Yeah. Great, all right, and then postoperatively, uh, you mentioned we're going to continue gabapentin. That's going to be one hundred mm-hmm. TID. And that's until they leave the hospital, or did they go home on that as well? Yeah, so the, the post-operative, again, it's a standardized regimen. And depending uh, what they get really depends on their, their, um, their status in terms of diet. So if they're NPO, then uh, if they have an epidural, we'll continue the epidural and then give them uh, an IV form of Tylenol or IV form of an NSAID like Ketorolac. Uh, and then when they take orals, then we'll give convert everything to orals. And the key thing here is that we'll give the non-opioids as scheduled, such as the Tylenol and the uh, ibuprofen, and the gap pen as scheduled. And then if there's breakthrough pain, then they'll get a tramadol, which technically is not an opioid. It, it has some opiate mu activity. But then if that doesn't work, then they get the opiate. So the opiates are there, but they're last. And that's been a different change. Instead of having that first, they're last. Okay. Now, let's talk for a minute about Toradol, Ketorolac, as you mentioned. Uh, very powerful NSAID, a lot of uh, good uh, analgesic properties. Often we see some resistance from uh, our surgical colleagues in terms of concern around bleeding. Uh, what's the evidence for that, and when do we worry about yeah, it? Yeah, that's very, again, uh, the nice thing about this pathway, they've, they've accepted that, and in the sense that I, we do understand their concerns. There's always bleeding, uh, but the nonsters don't cause bleeding. Uh, it's, you know, they can't erode a, a, a clot. Um, the, the piece of data suggests that NSAIDs don't, or, or Ketorolac, particularly IV, is not associated with bleeding comes from uh, a large uh, observational study by Strom and JAMA in 1996 where it looked at uh, Toradol, and they did not show any, uh, if you use limited five days use, there's no increased evidence of operative site or EGI bleeding. And the other interesting part is the two recent analysis in use of uh, Toradol in the uh, uh, breast reconstruction literature. And as you know, the breast surgeons are probably the most careful about bleeding because obviously they, if they have bleeding in their flap can ruin their, their whole work, more so than other surgeons, I would imagine. Not to say that 
some surgeons are not don't care about bleeding, but the plastic surgeons are exquisitely sensitive about that. And there's two men analysis in their literature suggesting that the use of Tordal does not is not associated with the increase in bleeding. Okay, great. And now the other thing we think about with Tordal is renal function. Uh, is there a threshold of uh, GFR or or just a um, degree of renal dysfunction where you wouldn't give Tordal? I think usually we we hold it if the creatinine is above one five or they're older patients. But again, there's a nice meta analysis by Lee. Uh, much older, about two, around 2000, suggesting that, not Toradol per se, but NSAIDs, if, if the, the patient is euphilemic and has normal renal function, that the addition of NSAIDs don't really cause uh, a higher renal harm. But again, we are cognizant that things do change in the periapsis very, period very quickly, so every day we round on them, we look at the, the creatinine. Great. Now, the Toradol would be given as... Uh, either 15 or 30, depending on age. Is that how you determine the dose? Yeah, it's a minimum of 15, but the key thing is scheduled. I like, ideally, we like to give 30. Um, it's usually a dose-dependent effect, uh, but you know, we'll take 15 if we can get it. Uh, usually, But again, if they're older, we might not give it at all. And okay. certain patients um, will hold until the first day after surgery. Great. And then the literature you had mentioned on bleeding doesn't make a distinction between 15 and 30. There's no thought that 30 is higher. No, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. Great. Um, okay. Now, we do not continue the celecoxib, is that right, postoperatively? Right, we, we could, um, and we're actually we're thinking about that. Um, celecoxib is, uh, again, doesn't have any issues in bleeding, uh, and there, the older, other celecoxib, obviously we know, is rofecoxib, which was eliminated uh, over a decade ago because of higher incidence of MI. There's a recent New England Journal article that suggests that the cell coxib, even in long-term use, is not associated with higher MI. So we can think about that. We'll discuss that among our group. But the, the, I would just say that one of the things is the cost. Uh, it's cell coxib is about $2 a pill, whereas ibuprofen is, I don't know, $0.10. Cents. Right. So it's not clear yet um, what we're going to do. I'll bring that up to the group. And again, that's the nice thing about this process is I'll review the literature and I'll print, put the group and see what the group says. Uh, I think it makes sense for the cell coxib to stay pre-op because there's no bleeding issue, but um, we'll have to see what happens. Great. Now, patients who do have epidurals, how long do those usually stay in up until, is there a set number of days up until the day they leave, or how does it go? Uh, usually once they're able to tolerate um, oral intake and, and tolerate pills, we'll, we'll just remove the epidural. Okay. And do you titrate it down at all, wean it all, or just stop it? Not in general. Obviously, there's more difficult patients, the opiatolent patients or something like that. We would... Uh, we would stop the epidural, leave it in, see how they tolerate pills, and then take it out either the, later that day or the next day. Great. Now, we talked about colorectal um, surgery as the way this started and what we started here. What other types of surgery have gone to looking at ERAS pathways? Well, the nice thing is that we have more business that we can handle. So we've uh, considered, we've branched out into uh, liver resection, uh, cystoprostatectomy. We have one ongoing for pediatrics, thoracic surgery, and then we had modified one, certainly not a full ERAS pathway. We've revised our post-cesarean analgesic pathway and, again, have modified our, our um, uh, breast re-implant pathway to decrease nausea and vomiting. So those are several of the ones, including the GYN oncology that we've actually started. So these have been all pretty successful and shown that decreased length of stay by about two days. Great. So let's come back in a minute to the outcome changes that we've seen. 
But I want to revisit fl- intraop fluids again. Uh, so you mentioned before we really want to, and I completely agree, lim- limit as much as possible the the fluid that we're using. Is there a goal, uh, um, cc's per kilo or total fluid? For yeah, a case? So, I mean, the general goal is to maintain uvulemia, and, and obviously there are many ways to do that. And the again, I think for us as anesthesiologists uh, or anesthesiology providers, we've sort of been trained to give fluid. And so most of the time we give too much fluid and that has excess amount of fluids can cause ileus, uh, submucosal edema, which can potentially affect anastomosis healing and infection. But on the other hand, if you give too little, you can cause renal damage and other and organ failure. So the key point is to get that sweet spot of uvulemia. And typically what we'll do, again, the Gatorade helps because you give a little fluid ahead of time, is to, if it's a, sort of maintains this, what we call zero balance fluid, we typically will give about two to three cc's per kilo per hour and then give fluid bolses uh, on top of that if needed, for instance, blood loss or other fluid shifts. And we will use a sort of balanced salt solution like plasma light or lactate rainers. We will shy away from normal saline or hypertonic saline I think we probably don't, we start off with albumin, but don't use that routinely now, but we can use it still for boluses. So that's not a problem. But again, to a, a balanced salt solution is the key thing. Great. And that's staying away from normal saline because of the metabolic acidosis that it causes and that's the correct. potential for renal injury. Right. That's correct. Great. So there's a variety of pathways. Are there any major changes, putting aside the, the post-cesarean section, but for the general OR ERAS pathways, are there any major differences between what we've talked about with the colorectal uh, approach and what you do for the other cases? So I think uh, the easiest way to think about it is look at all the abdominal cases together. Thoracic is going to be different. Uh, I think that uh, any other orthopedic will be different. Um, but the abdominal cases have very similar um, attributes and, and, but there are minor differences. So, for instance, in, in our uh, urology cases, we will hold uh, our NSAIDs until the first, first pulse of day just to watch for renal function. Obviously, for liver cases, we want to avoid acetaminophen. Uh, if the liver functions go quite high, can we go quite high? So those are minor differences uh, that we're looking at. But in general, everything else is very similar. Great. Are there major differences in, uh, with thoracic and with orthopedic, or how does that differ? Uh, I think orthopedic will have a different type of regional. Obviously, I think with the epidurals, I think very people in general are shying away from that uh, because of the anticoagulation issue. They use very potent anticoagulants like uh, low molecular heparins, and that's not really compatible. So we'll use more peripheral nerve blocks. With the thoracic, I think the um, it really. It, the fluid is even more restricted. I think the it's not clear how they'll handle the TIVA or lack of inhalational agent. Those are those things that we are in the process of developing. Great. All right. And then let's wrap up by just talking about some of the um, uh, what we've seen in terms of benefits from these pathways. So the, the big one, I think, that was first seen and that you've continued to see here is with decreased length of stay. Is that right? Yeah. So the, it's very remarkable. Um, and very consistent for the larger cases that, that you have a decrease in length of stay about two days, and that's consistent with the literature. There's other uh, differences. I think uh, there was a decrease in surgical site infection, whether it's related to our anesthetic technique or not, but certainly the whole pathway as a package uh, has um, dropped our surgical site infection rate from about 15 to 5% for the colorectal. I, I don't know the data for the other ones yet. Uh, there's been some improvement in patient satisfaction, 
Uh, and I think the one thing is anecdotally, we, we talk to patients who've gone through the pathway multiple, who've had multiple surgeries before, and they feel that this is uh, by far the best they've had. Um, so those are the things that uh, I think are important. But I think the most important thing is that we open up uh, communication lines with our surgical and nursing colleagues and truly make this a sort of patient-centered pathway. What do you credit for the decrease in surgical site infection? Again, it's probably multifactorial. I think the, our surgical site infection was initially about 20 25%, and then they had uh, a group of people that called the CUSP uh, that dropped it down to 15%, and that was stuck there for about three, two to three years. And then we implemented the ear aspect, and we dropped it down to 5%. So it, certainly there's not, a, there's not a randomized trial, so there's no causality, but temporally it's related. Um, so we continue what they're doing, like the, the warming blankets, but again, our anesthetic technique is different. It's preserved immune function. They also were more consistent with using, uh, uh, I think, chlorhexidine showers and wipes. And, and so there are many things that can be attributed. I mean, it's a whole package that's sure. been very successful. Great. Um, so if, if there are people out there listening who are thinking they'd like to learn more or they're interested in starting ERAS programs at their institutions, what would you recommend? What, what, where should they go and what should they read? Well, one of the easiest resources to, to, to go to is the, uh, the website for the American Society of Enhanced Recovery. And they have some sample pathways there. They have an annual conference there. Uh, last two years been held in D.C. I think next year, 2017, in April, will be held in D.C. And that's a very valuable resource uh, to, to look at that. So that's where I would start first. And then you have time to look at PubMed. There, there's also an, a European Enhanced Recovery Society, and they, uh, again, ERAS, and they have some uh, examples of protocols. So I think that's the first place I would go. Great. Thanks, Chris. And I will try to put those links on the website along with this uh, podcast. Uh, anything else? Anything else we missed? Anything we should say before I let you go? No, I think uh, this has been very successful and overall. And I think the rewarding part is that there are really no losers. Everyone wins. The patient wins. Our, our surgeons do. We do. As anesthesiology providers, we're, this is a, a truly an area where we can show added value to the uh, healthcare system. That's great. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks for coming on the show. No, My pleasure. Really appreciate it. All right. That's it for today. Remember, you can check out the podcast website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. On the website, you can leave comments if you have a particular thought to share on any of the episodes. You can join the mailing list in the upper right-hand corner. And, of course, you can always email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Remember, the best way to do this, if you have a comment on an episode, really is to leave that comment because then everyone else out there can see it too and they can respond to your comments as well. Always really appreciate when people take the time to do that. Let us know. Do you have ERAS pathways at your program? What do you do? Is it different from what Dr. Wu has described here? And we can all learn from what you do as well. Thanks so much for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Christopher Wu, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.